Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Pat Solver, and it's time for my monthly podcast for the American Journal of Managed Care. And we have a real treat for you today because we have with us Otis Webb Brawley, who is the Chief Medical and Scientific Officer and Executive Vice President of the American Cancer Society. He's a board-certified internist and oncologist and a master in the American College of Physicians, as well as a number of other uh, uh, great credentials, uh, including being a member of the Institute of Medicine, which is now known as the National Academy of Medicine. And, you know, it's pretty exciting, Otis, because we're going to talk about some good news when it comes to cancer. We're going to talk about the fact that the death rate has been declining over the last two decades and has dropped another 1.7%. And there's been a 2% decline in the rate of new cancer diagnoses in the last decade for men, although not for women. So Otis, what's going on? Why are death rates declining? And what's going on with new cancer diagnoses um, not dropping in women? Hello. And yes, it is good news, but it also tells us what we need to do uh, going forward. The biggest reason for the decline in the death rate is people stopped smoking. Uh, men stopped smoking in the late 1950s and continued uh, to decrease the prevalence of smoking well into the 1980s. And it sort of, it sort of um, stopped in terms of the decline. Uh, but uh, then there's a decline that's uh, started again in the last 15 years. So for men, the biggest driver by far is that they stop smoking and they stop getting these smoking-related cancers. And that explains most of the decline in men except for colorectal and prostate, which we'll get to in a second. For women, uh, women actually uh, continue to increase their smoking rates throughout the 1960s, and their declines have been slower than in men. And so we've seen less of a decline in cancer uh, death rates in women because their decline from smoking was not nearly as steep as the decline that men had in the 1960s. There's so many things going on, and it is really good news that people have quit smoking. I, I live in California, and I just don't see smokers anywhere. Well, I'm in, we're in County, California, which is one of those healthiest counties in the country, yeah. um, and you just don't see cigarettes anymore, which is which is very exciting. There's um, a huge geographical difference, though. You know, West Virginia, Kentucky, Missouri, about 30% of adults still smoke. Utah and California, it's down around 10%. Uh, high variance across the country. I'm a little worried that marijuana is going to increase some of our lung cancer rates because it is carcinogenic. And what about vaping? So there is this whole thing about um, maybe vaping is safer, safer than smoking cigarettes, and it's been even proposed as an alternative to help people get off cigarettes. Is there any inkling that, um, that vaping is going to have an impact on cancer one way or the other? Well, vaping is safer than combustible cigarettes, but that does not mean that it is safe. And there's a lot of things in the vaping solutions that we don't know about and they have not been tested. So I'm not an advocate for vaping at all. Uh, there is a group of individuals who are smoking combustible cigarettes who find that they can wean off with vaping. 
I, I would, I'm fine with them doing that. I would prefer that they do it by using other nicotine replacement products because vaping still is going to have some health risks that are undefined yet. Uh, there's also this concern that vaping is a gateway for children uh, toward combustibles. They can vape up in their uh, bedroom and the parents won't smell it, get hooked to nicotine, and the next thing you know, they're smoking combustibles when they're out of the house. So we worry about vaping being good for helping people get off smoking, and we worry about vaping being bad for people getting into smoking. Yeah, a real problem. Um, so I wanted to move away from the causes of lung cancer because, you know, this link to mm -hmm. cigarettes is we've known for a long time and ask you what the impact has been uh, with advances in early diagnosis, in particular lung CT screening. And then if you could also just talk a little bit about um, the death rates declining because of some of these new amazing targeted therapies. Okay. Well, Lung CT screening, uh, there's a great study that shows that it decreases risk of death by about 20%. That same study shows that it actually has some harms associated with it as well. As a matter of fact, for every 5.4 lives saved by lung cancer screening, one life is lost uh, associated with biopsies and bronchoscopies caused by the screening. So there's the benefit and there's the risk. And everyone who is considering getting screened needs to balance that benefit and risk and make a choice for themselves as to whether they want to be screened. Also, they need to be screened at a good place that is capable of uh, evaluating the CTs and treating lung cancer if it's diagnosed. That being said, very few people in the United States are getting lung cancer screened. Maybe three to four percent of all the folks who are eligible for lung cancer screening, which are people in their mid-50s and older who have smoked more than a pack a day for 30 years and, and are still in good health. I do a lot of things in digital health, and I'm actually involved in doing some things around artificial intelligence. I'm, I'm, I'm not on the techie side, but more on the um, reporting and telling the story side. And I know that there are some companies like Enlytic that have applied artificial intelligence and machine learning to lung cancer CT screening and can, and, and can show that it's, it's much more sensitive and, and is actually particularly good in being able to calculate the volume, characterize more of a three-dimensional view of, of the lesion. Um, yes. are, are you familiar with that? And do you think that this, this might change the way we look at lung CT screening? Uh, it might change how we're looking at lung CT screening. Again, this is offering something to people who have extensive smoking histories. And I think one of the things that we need to try to do uh, is discourage smoking, number one. For people who have this extensive smoking histories, I think they need to consider lung screening. I think over time it will get better and more hospitals will be able to offer it. Uh, we've actually done some mathematical modeling and lung CT screening as it exists now. If it were able, if we were able to offer it throughout the entire United States and the way it was offered in those university hospitals that did the trial, we could save about 12,000 lives per year. But as it is offered now, it would actually cost us a little over 2,000 lives per year. Uh, 
you know, keep in, keep in mind that uh, well over 150,000 people die every year from uh, smoking-related diseases. So we really need to focus on the anti-smoking message. But lung cancer screening is going to get better and will be an option. And unfortunately, I don't, we should mention this, about 20% of lung cancer patients are non-smokers. And right now, I don't have anything to offer them in terms of screening, and that's very dissatisfying. But but there is something to offer them in terms of the new targeted therapies. Is is that correct? That is right. That is right. Uh, for people who have metastatic disease, and here the, the, this is this is really good news for someone like someone like me who's a medical oncologist. But for the patient, this can still be somewhat dissatisfying. Um, many of our lung cancers. Are, and I say lung cancers because when I graduated from medical school, we really had two kinds of lung cancer, non-small cell and small cell. Nowadays, 30 years later, non-small cell is thought of as perhaps 80 different cancers as we look at the molecular biology of the different cancers. Some of those cancers, we have drugs that actually do very well for the patients. You know, crizotinib for an ALK-positive lung cancer. We have some people who have been alive with medicine static disease for five and six years right now. And this is a disease where seven or eight years ago, those people's life expectancy was a year or two. Yes, pretty amazing. Uh, yeah. Uh, serafinib for BRAF positive lung cancer. Now, unfortunately, these targeted therapies are only good for about 30% of the people who have non-small cell lung cancer right now. But they're growing in number and they're getting better. Well, that's that's really great news. Um, so I want to I want to switch gears here and talk about breast cancer mm-hmm. because it is still a scourge among women, even though the death rates have have declined. And again, I want to ask the question: um, How much of the progress that we've made in breast cancer is related to being better at diagnosis versus having more treatments, including the new targeted therapies? Or is it a mix, mixture of both? And then if you could throw in a little bit about what we know about the causes. Again, I, I live in sure. Marin County, and for a long time there was a there was a big blip in the number of breast cancer cases here, which evidently has, has declined. But there was a lot of speculation yeah. about what was it about Marin County that caused this hot spot of, of mm-hmm. breast cancer in, in the environment. Yeah, we've had a 40% decline in breast cancer death rates over the last uh, 30 or so years, really since 1988. And that 30%, I'm sorry, 40% decline uh, has been looked at. Much of it is due to improvements in treatment, and nearly half of it is due to screening. Uh, I'm a big advocate for both because... uh, uh, we've got a lot of good studies to show that there's a substantial number of Americans who are diagnosed with breast cancer and then get less than adi- adequate care for that breast cancer. So we need to work on getting screening to people, making sure the screening is good, and making sure that we get uh, good treatment once diagnosed. And, you know, we very frequently argue about uh, should we start screening at 50? Should we start screening at 40? Uh, as one who gets to look at the epidemiology, we could save more lives if we just treated the people who were diagnosing now correctly. 
or a higher proportion of them treated correctly as opposed to what's happening right now. Yeah, that's a very good point. And we're going to come back to that point mm-hmm. at the end because it isn't mm-hmm. just with breast cancer. It's with mm-hmm. there's a disparity in access to diagnosis and sure. treatment uh, with respect to all cancers. But I kind of wanted to right. quickly run through um, some of the other uh, cancers that have had some good news, uh, mm-hmm. prostate and colorectal. Um, what about this this remaining controversy about PSA? I know we've been saying yeah. for years and years and years uh, that we shouldn't get it because, as you say, yeah. doing the workup is not without its morbidity. What, what What's yeah. the final word on that? Well, there is no final word yet. There's been a decline in mortality that's close to 50%. Uh, that decline started before we started screening in the United States, so it's hard to say that the whole thing is due to screening. That decline exists in 21 countries around the world, 18 of which don't screen. Several of them actually have policies against screening that are really very harsh. Um, So some of the decline that we've seen since 2000 might be due to screening, but the decline that we saw in the 1990s is definitely not due to screening, Uh, might be due to treatment. Uh, There's some very technical things about changing how one interprets death certificate data. The World Health Organization changed the algorithm in 1991, and here's the question, is that why we've seen a decline? in prostate cancer, the people who are dying are being categorized as having other diseases. It translates into we still don't know. What we do know is in the 1990s in this country, every man who was diagnosed today was told you need to be treated immediately, and many of them had radical prostatectomy in the next week. Uh, Today, in 2018, uh, many men who are diagnosed, indeed more than half of all men who are diagnosed through screening, are actually told we should watch your cancer, and many of those men will never be treated. So we've gotten a lot better in being able to distinguish the cancers that need to be treated and the cancers that need to be watched. And we've gotten better in our abilities to watch and figure out this is one we need to stop watching. So we've gotten better. I think the question, uh, should a man be screened for prostate cancer, the answers have changed just in the last five to ten years. Uh, there's a group of men who I would encourage to get screened now who, knowing what their concerns were, I would have encouraged them not to get screened just five years ago. I do think it's still really up to the man. Know the potential benefits, the potential risks. Know that uh, uh, it's there are harms associated with prostate cancer screening, diagnosis, and treatment, but there may be benefits, and a man needs to decide what he wants to do. I think this whole discussion of prostate cancer shows us how very hard it is to get to the truth. You know, right. From a consumer point of view, you want somebody to say, this is what you should do, but prostate cancer has shown us that that you can't really get there and that there's still um, very difficult decisions that need to be made on the part of the, of the patient and, and their family and, and, and their right. providers. I want to move on because I want to be sure we have a chance to talk about disparities at the end. But um, a few words about colon cancer. It's another good news story. Yes. And there's less controversy, thank goodness. 
Uh, we have had dramatic declines, well over 40 to 45% declines in colorectal cancer death rates throughout the United States. Uh, and this, some of these declines started back in the 1970s. They are linked to screening, stool blood screening, sigmoidoscopy, colonoscopy. They all are highly effective. Uh, even stool blood testing also, by the way, uh, which will trigger a colonoscopy, has been shown to find polyps, which reduces risk of colon cancer. So we're talking about a screening test that reduces risk of death and reduces risk of colon cancer. Uh, our abilities to treat the disease, including our abilities to treat stage 3 and 4 disease, have improved dramatically, and they too uh, are part of the reason for this decline in mortality. The sad thing there, and this is a lot like the smoking issue, and you can say the same thing in breast cancer as well, uh, there are um, uh, 12 states in the United States that have not had a 10% decline in colorectal cancer death rates, while the United States as a whole has had close to a 45% decline. And do we know if that's environmental? Is that insurance coverage? Is that patient education? Uh, any, any hints to why that disparity exists? What I'd like you to do is to answer that question and combine it with kind of our closing conversation yes. about the impact of, of you know, where is this diversity, the impact of race and ethnicity, insurance coverage, all that kind of stuff on um, cancer outcomes. Yes, these declines are because people got adequate preventive, diagnostic, and therapeutic care. Preventative care can be uh, in the diet, five to nine servings of fruits and vegetables per day, not being obese exercising. All of those things prevent a number of cancers, including prevent colon cancer. It's not just screening. What we have found is the states that have had a very small decline in colorectal cancer death rates are the states that overwhelmingly have um, the highest proportion of people who have not graduated from high school or not graduated from college. They are some of the poorest states in the United States, and they are the states where people traditionally have difficulty getting health care once diagnosed, but they also have difficulty with some of the preventative aspects. There's some of the states with the highest proportion of the population being obese. Uh, we have also, by the way, uh, in calculating how many deaths can be prevented just through giving people good health care, uh, figured out uh, just by noting the death rate for college-educated Americans in the United States is considerably different from that of uh, non-college-educated Americans for cancer. If all Americans had the death rate of college-educated Americans, 150,000 of the 620,000 people who are going to die this year would not die. That means that they would have all the preventative aspects over the last 10, 15, 20 years in terms of diet and exercise. They would have all the screening that college-educated Americans tend to have, and they'd have access to better care and be able to interact with the healthcare system to get that good care. All of those things are important. Uh, we spend a lot of time talking about race, 
and racial disparities, many of the racial disparities, most of the racial disparities are actually socioeconomic disparities or caused by socioeconomics. So on that note, we're going to have to wrap up, um, but I would love to have you come back sometime and talk to us, um, have a discussion about what you know, this is unacceptable that we should have two Americas, an America that gets good health care and has good health, health outcomes in America that doesn't, and that, it's, and that it's geographic, right? It's not just that I got better genes than you got worse genes. This has to do with, as you said, the socioeconomic circumstances of people, um, and in my mind, completely unacceptable in a country as as wealthy as ours. So Otis, I want to thank you very much for joining us and sharing the good news and and some of the bad news. And we'd love to have you. Thank you very much for having me.